Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, you will find this on page 1522. Page 1522. 1522. It's also in your large print sheets. We'll be reading Romans 3, verses 10 through 23. Romans 3, verses 10 through 23. Romans 3, starting in verse 10 and going to verse 23. Hear now the word of God. As it is written, there's none righteous, no Not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we look particularly at verses 19 and 20 of Romans 3, although we'll be looking at other verses as well, but focusing particularly on verses 19 and 20, which we see that Paul demonstrates how the law shows how bad man is. Paul demonstrates how the law shows how bad man is. Now, preaching on the law of God uh, is not often popular today. It's rigid, uncompromising, demanding. It represents an absolute standard. It's the law, right? get pulled over by the cop. It's the law. It's an absolute standard. But preaching on the law is absolutely necessary. Law makes up much of scripture. But more than that, we must hear God's thunderings at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, just before the giving of the law, the thunderings of God, The glory of God revealed in terms of the thunders and the lightnings there. We must hear that and witness that 
that is to say, his righteous anger against sin, before we will hear his gracious invitation to go to Mount Calvary, where the cross was. Now today marks the beginning of a series on the law, and so today, and Lord willing, the next two weeks, we'll be dealing with three uses of the law. I realize the term use can, there, there can be various ways to construe the idea of the uses of the law. But if you look at the larger catechism, uh, when it talks about different uses, basically it's saying three things. And if you, if you know the old pesticide DDT, so we use that as initials, it demonstrates that we are sinners. It drives us either further into our sin or to Christ, forces us to a decision, and thirdly, it teaches us how to live, DDT. So today, the first D, it demonstrates that we are sinners. And in this regard, first of all, let's look then at, uh, in our text as we see the universal scope of the law, the universal scope of the law. And so Paul writes here in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says. Now, this speech, then, is objective speech. It is something outside of us. Again, it's, it is law. Paul here says, and we know there are definite facts about the law, not maybes. That's the nature of law. And so Paul is able to say, and we know. We're convinced. We're convicted. This is in stark contrast to today's attitudes as we look around us at modern society, it's all about doing your own thing. It's all about, oh, let me hear your story, meaning, and I'm going to affirm you in your story, not let me hear your story in order to bring counsel to you according to the word of God. And so this is in contrast then, this idea that there is something outside of us that governs us is totally in, in contrast to today's attitudes in modern society, but also in liberal theology as well, with its easygoing ideas and even many times its total rejection of the law of God on all kinds of things. <clears throat> um, and so we have denials today of the law and denials of objective revelation. But my friends, Paul would have none of it and we know, and then he goes on to say that whatever the law says. And the law here is the revealed will of God. The law shows his holy nature. I am the Lord your God. Part of the preface of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. I am. The very fact, by the way, that God commands, as in the Ten Commandments, shows that he is the Lord. And the law also shows his holy will and what righteousness really is. Again, everyone has his or her own view of right and wrong. And we see this a lot today, again, in terms of our modern society. The question is, is it God's view of right and wrong? God's standard is what we must hold to. And so here then we have this law showing God's holy nature, the fact that he commands that he is the one who is in charge and he is the one who determines what righteousness is. Now in context here, 
um, when he when Paul says we know that whatever the law says in context, that the law could refer to the whole Old Testament. Throughout here, just prior to this, uh, we've had the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah quoted. That's what that's what Paul's doing here. He's quoting here in Romans three. You remember also in uh, John. Uh, chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus quotes Psalm 82, God you are, I have declared it. And in that context, he says, does not your law also say this? So law then could or could be a, a broader category than, let's say, the Ten Commandments, for example, or even the books of Moses. But nevertheless, the point here is that the Ten Commandments cannot be separated from the rest of Scripture. All of Scripture is permeated with the ten words of God, with the Ten Commandments, and with his righteous law. All of Scripture is our infallible rule for faith and practice. But we can also then focus more narrowly, as we'll be doing, Lord willing, over the next several weeks and months in terms of the law, in terms of the moral law, in terms of the Ten Commandments, as part of God's objective revelation, in terms of how that law then speaks. And in that regard, we see this is what Paul says. Now we know that whatever the law says. The word, therefore, says is lege. For example, uh, very similar to logos, word, logic or biology, the study of life, geology, the study of the earth, and so forth, psychology, the study of the soul. So whenever you hear that ology, children, you know it means study of or dealing with. And so this signifies content. It signifies content. It's the content, whatever the law says, in terms of the content of it. It is significant content, and it is detailed content. And by the way, this objective nature of revelation is true because it is God's word. And it is God's word whether or not anyone is listening to it. It doesn't matter whether, whether everyone in the world goes contrary to the word of God. It doesn't change the word of God. The law still speaks. And notice it says here, and whatever or whatsoever. This refers to the fact that all of Scripture is to be obeyed. There's no part that can be rejected. Every jot and tittle, as Jesus said, must be adhered to. But there is this objective speech, in the con- referring to the content of the word. It says but there's also applicatory speaking as well. Having established that it is objective, that it is outside of us, that it is, is uh, something that does not depend upon us in any way, shape, or form, it nevertheless speaks to us. And that comes now to the next verb that we have here. You see, in, in the New King James, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says. Actually, those are two different words for to say. So the first one is lege, logos, content. The next one here is lale, laleo, which refers to the act of speaking. And so the 
the word of God then speaks to people. It speaks to you and to me with regard to our duty before God. Shorter catechism, question and answer number three. In terms of uh, what do the, prince, the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Doctrine, law. Scripture, you see, is not a dead word. It is living speech. As the writer to the Hebrews says, the word of God is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How many times have we read Scripture? I trust it's been true of us. I trust it's been true of you. We've read Scripture and we're cut to the quick because that objective word is applied to us. It is, it is spiritual. It is driven by the Spirit and then it's driven by the Spirit into our hearts. And so the Word of God, the law of God then, is relevant today, not just the past. So it says, it speaks to those who are under the law or in the sphere of the law. This, of course, refers, first of all, to the Jews, those people to whom the oracles of God were given. Paul had made special reference to them in chapter 2 in order to demonstrate the Jews' sinfulness too. They They were privileged, but they were also under the law and under condemnation. It refers to the Gentiles also. There's no restriction here. Verse 23, which read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible makes clear that everyone is responsible to God. But it refers to those of us who are believers as well. For we who are believers also are convicted of sin. So it drives us then to repentance. So we see, first of all then, the universal scope of the law. And now we see the usefulness of the law with regard to man's sin. The usefulness of the law with regard to man's sin. And first of all, then, we consider this positively. Positively, we see that the law condemns. Now, it doesn't seem positive, but the point here of positive is the idea that this is what it does. This is what it does. It condemns, indeed, it can only condemn. The law shows men the sinful pollution of their nature, habits, and lie and lives. We are told here because through the law is the knowledge of sin. Through the law is the knowledge of sin. <clears throat> the end of verse 20. For, or by, or because... Through the law is the knowledge of sin. Now this law then, this law then, which gives us the knowledge of sin, how does it do it? Well, the law is a mirror. This is what James 1 teaches us. The law is a mirror. Now, you know what it's like to wake up in the morning and go to the mirror and say, mm, maybe I'd better comb my hair before I go down to breakfast. 
There is a uh, somewhat amusing uh, anecdote uh, from six years ago when uh, my wife and I went over to Great Britain and I was privileged to do a footplate ride on um, a steam locomotive, that's say being in the cab of a steam locomotive in one of these heritage railways over there. And afterwards my wife said, um, you really better look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, I had all this dirt and grime and so forth. And of course, well, it was kind of funny. There is photographic evidence of this, but in any case, and that's kind of funny, right? It's kind of amusing, but of course, I eventually I cleaned that off. But when it comes to sin, there's nothing funny about it. Because we see ourselves in that mirror. It's not just some dirt, a little bit of dirt here and there and so forth. But there's an ugliness to, to us. That's what the law shows us. We, we come face to face with the righteous requirements of God, and the more we see ourselves in that mirror, the worse it becomes. The deeper we go into the recesses of our heart, the more we realize what horrible sinners we are. We see our impotence, our lack of power. We cannot keep the law. We see our iniquity. Not only in doing what is not right, but even in not... Uh, in, in not only in doing what is wrong, but also in not doing what is right. We cannot keep the law, and not to keep the law, not to do what it requires, what it commands itself is sin. And finally, we see the curse as well. For when we fall short of the glory of God, we also are subject to his condemnation. Why do we see these things in this mirror of the law? Well, my friends, the law perfectly exhibits the righteousness of God. It perfectly exhibits the righteousness of God. And it thus intensifies the judgment. It's brighter and more focused the more that we look at this, the more it becomes evident to us. Is this not... Uh, what we see in Romans 4, verse 15, because the, the, ra- the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. And chapter 5 of Romans, verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So we, we rejoice in the last part of that verse, but we first have to get through the first part, because where the law entered, where the law entered, the offense abounded. And as a mirror, however, notice, as a mirror, which is what the law is, it can only tell us what's wrong. It can only tell us what's wrong. So you can look in that mirror all day long, and you're not going to get your face cleaned, or you're not going to get your hair combed. The law reflects reality. It does so truly. You really are a sinner. But the law in and of itself cannot change anyone. Now as we look here in Romans 3, at the passage we read, verses 10 and following, we see a practical overview of the situation. We see, first of all, habitual sin. Look at verse 10. There is none righteous, 
No, not one. None of us can do anything good. Everyone is rotten to the core. Because every sin involves the pride of supposedly knowing better than God and the corruption of loving evil more than good. Verse 11, which, by the way, is another quotation from Psalm 14. That was verse 10. We'll be singing Psalm 14 at the close of the service today. Psalm 14, verse 2, here, verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All men are blind in their minds, not thinking God's thoughts after him, and thus being stupid and foolish. In terms of their spiritual aspiration, they are dead, not wanting God, and as Paul would also write, seeking to suppress the knowledge of God. And in verse 12, again a quotation from Psalm 14, they have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable, there is none who does good, no, not one. In the Greek, you have the idea here of unprofitableness, uselessness. The Hebrew uh, tends to emphasize the idea of the corruption of man. And so we have habitual sin. This is who we are. We sin because we're sinners. And then we have the actual sin that is laid out here. Look at the the words here, the, the cruelty, if you will, ready to swallow up the poor in terms of words and actions, waiting on an opportunity to do mischief and engaging in this in an underhanded way, using venom or poison by which they aim at the neighbor's life by false witness, blasting his good name. Cheating, we see here Paul say, with their tongues they keep deceiving and cursing, which is also a quotation from Psalm 10, which we sang from earlier in the service, including, of course, not professing God as God. So in their words and in their ways, there is actual sin. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. They are very swift and industrious to do evil. As we read, uh, that was a quotation from, Psalm, from Isaiah 59, from which we read earlier. Man is miserable in his sin. Indeed, sin is a path of destruction. That's why verse 16 says, destruction and misery are in their ways. And verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. He knows nothing of true peace. Is that not the case? Is that not the case in terms of what we see in our society today? A few blocks from now. There will be this pop cultural icon putting on a concert for tens of thousands of people at Davies Men's Stadium. And they're going to be so excited and hyped up. Do you think they have any peace? They have no peace at all. That's looking for. They're looking for the answers, but they can't find them. And so they hype up, all excited. And it's like a drug. Just like drugs. Just like other things that we give ourselves to. Man's king. Peace. And there is no peace. And so in terms of the ways, notice also the root, not only the words and the ways, but also the root of it. It's 18. This is the key here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
the fear of God and not being afraid of him much, but being in awe of him and reverencing him. That's the soul of godliness, being ashamed, not just ashamed of displeasing our Heavenly Father. And not having that fear of God is the epitome of piety. It implies, this term implies that God is to be constantly in our, in our thought. He's constantly to be before us. We are to live corum Deo, to use the Latin, before God, in the presence of God. We're to be aware of the fact that God is everywhere there, not just when we come to church. Children, the old catechism, the old children's catechism question, can you see God? Nobody always sees me. And that's the point. And therefore, we live as if that is the case. But if we don't, it is because there is no fear of God before our eyes. The natural man has no fear of God. He is totally God. Now, as we look at Romans 3, 10 through 18, as we take an overview, it shows that man is totally depraved. That is to say that every part of man is affected. There's not one part. Eat. Our eyes, our mind, our hands, our feet. Everything is affected by sin. In verses 13 through 15, Paul's indictment is concrete. He talked about four organs of speech and then a fifth organ of feet. Romans 1, Paul wrote of the depraved mind. And of course, here in Romans 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Man is totally depraved. And here we see the depth of depravity. Now let's be clear, not everyone is as bad as he could be. Not everyone's as bad as he could be. But everyone is sinful, and that sin goes throughout every part of a man. I've used the illustration. If you have a, uh, a cup of water, and uh, it's, about, uh, it's about three quarters full of water, and you put one quarter of poison in it, I wouldn't want to drink it. You had just half of the, or a third, let's say, cup of water, you put two, and I also wouldn't want to drink it. But there is, you know, one is worse than the other, right? But in either, in neither case do I want to drink that water because that poison goes through the water, goes through higher liquid. And so it is with us. Everyone is sinful. And furthermore, everyone has the ability to plunge the depths of sin. Children, I want you to listen to me carefully here, and, and the adults too. Don't say, I could never do something like that. Don't ever say that of someone else. Right? Look at King David, the sweet psalmist of it. You would look at him and say, oh, he could never do whatever. But what did he do? He committed adultery, and then he committed murder to try to cover up the adultery. In Psalm 51, he confessed that he was rotten to the core. This was his sin condition from the point of conception in sin. Did my mother conceive me? 
So you say, well, I haven't, I haven't killed somebody. That's good. But you could. That's the point. You could. Sin is mysterious and it will bite you when you're least looking for it. It will bite you. But this sin then can only condemn those men, the sinful pollution of their nature, habits, and lives because the law is the knowledge of sin. And in that regard then, in this creation that the law does, it humbles men in the sense of their sin misery. Verse 19, that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become exposed to the judgment of God. The law causes people to feel the weight and judgment of God. The world becomes accountable to God and people at a certain point, especially if they confront are confronted with the law, they begin to realize what an awful they've done. This realization results in their humbled so that no one will be able to speak. Just Job, at the end of the book, you remember what Job says, what can I say? Isaiah 3, the psalmist says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I am in a people of unclean lips. What can we say at every mouth may be stopped? My friends, you to have come to this point or you do not have salvation. You have to have come to this point or you are not saved. So, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the uh, usefulness of the law, we see positively it can only condemn, uh, but also negatively the law cannot save because we, are, we read in verse 21, because by the works of the law, or, uh, excuse me, verse 20, because by the works of the law, flesh will be justified in his sight. By the way, this, the word because shows one reason uh, why man is, he realizes that he can't save himself. He realizes that. He comes to that understanding. He realizes man that, that he cannot save himself. This principle by, applies to all flesh as it says here. No flesh will be justified. There's no exception. We cannot be justified before God on the basis of works. And therefore, this principle, though, that the law cannot help sinners to have a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the action of his righteousness, verses 21 and 22. The righteousness that Christ gives, which is imputed to us, which is put to our account, not infused into us as in Roman Catholicism, but which is imputed to us, put to our account, is apart from the law. But it is Christ's complete righteousness that is all the things that he has done. It's apart from any performance we do, anything that we can add, our salvation is totally God, totally of grace, and totally, therefore, by faith. This righteousness, then, as it says here, verse 1, is revealed. It's been manifested. How has it been manifested? In the flesh. Because Jesus is the man. That's the point. Jesus 
is the God-man. He righteousness embodied. He is the law of God come in the flesh. And that reality has been witnessed to the law and the prophets through types, through prophecies, through promises. Faith, therefore, is necessary. Faith in Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. My friends, salvation is not found by our keeping the law. Salvation, however, is to all who believe. This law, then, this law contrasts Christ's perfect life with our sinful lives. And this is part of the beauty of salvation. Well, just in saying, let me summarize by saying, the law demonstrates, it shows man how bad he is. But it also points, even here in Romans 3, to Christ's righteousness. The need we have of him what about you? What about, are you trusting in Christ? Have you embraced Christ as Lord and Savior? I plead with you today, if you haven't, acknowledge your sin. Look at yourself in the light, in the mirror of the law. Know how bad you are, how wicked you are, how rebellious you are, how displeasing you are to God. Let your mouth be stopped. Come to the one who, in whom the righteousness of God has been revealed, Jesus the Christ. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that the law would indeed convict us of our sin, but we also pray that thy spirit would also bring about the confirmation that it is Christ who is the Savior, and Christ is the one in whom we can trust. And so, Father, pray that each one standing here would stand on the judgment, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If there be any here, O Lord, who does not know Christ, give that rest. Cause him to be restless, so he or she rest in Christ. In whose name I pray. Amen.